Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. The field of nowcasting, where we have been working on that area for almost a decade, is definitely more competitive than it was. I remember many years ago when we started doing this, we were saying, oh, now casting and people were like, now what? Whereas now it's become very commoditized. I think, however, that because the structure of the economy is changing, because the availability of data is changing, if you manage to be at the frontier and you manage to stay at the frontier, keep innovating, there is always a little bit of edge that you can get. One of the interesting things about machine learning in particular, and if you want AI, is that there has been a lot of focus on using AI for prediction. And for many years, we were somewhat skeptical of that because, again, you run into this problem that you don't have enough data. Now, what is much more interesting for us is to use these techniques in the realms of portfolio construction and risk management. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at JP Morgan. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Juan Antolin Diaz, who is partner and chief research officer at Fulcrum Asset Management. So Juan, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Juan, could you start by introducing yourself and your background? So I'm an economist, born and bred, and I would say I am a quantitative macroeconomist. So I started in Madrid, my hometown in Spain, then came to London around 2010 to study at the LSE. I did a brief stint at the European Central Bank in Frankfurt and came back here to join Fulcrum as a macroeconomist. Wonderful. Could you tell me a little bit about Fulcrum as a whole and the background of Fulcrum? So Fulcrum is an independent asset manager. It was founded in 2004, this year is actually our 20th anniversary, by Gavin Davis, who was previously the chief economist at Goldman Sachs, and then he was chairman of the BBC for a while. And since our origin, we have had a very strong macroeconomic orientation and a very strong research focus. Within that, my role is basically to organize the research and development of the firm. Brilliant. And just to clarify, you're a macro house, you're trading all the major asset classes. Mm -hmm. Presumably you're not drilling down to single stocks given your macro focus. No, we are primarily a macro house. So our main focus is equities, bonds, currencies, commodities at a relatively top-down level. It is true that we have in-house equity specialists, volatility specialists that will go to much more granular levels of detail. However, I would say that the bulk of our trading and our history is mostly on the macro side. Thank you. So you're clearly research-led, you're clearly economics-led. Would you describe your firm as more discretionary or systematic? So I think one of the interesting things about Fulcrum is that we have been combining discretionary and quantitative elements almost since the foundation of the firm. So we have funds. And in fact, the majority of our assets are in a fund that is mostly discretionary, but will have some systematic elements. And then we have funds that are completely systematic, including some trend following funds, some quantitative macro funds. And then we have funds that combine 
both types of strategies. So actually our specialty is the combination of discretionary and systematic. And I guess one of the things we're quite focused is in this blurred line between discretion and quantitative methods. Because to some extent, you know, computers are everywhere. If they are going to be better at a particular task, why not integrate them into our process? Yes. And would you say that over time, the frontier of systematic power is going up relative to discretionary because your modeling capabilities are going up? So I think it is necessarily going up because there is more information, Mm. more data, and more computing power to process it. However, there is also more noise than before. And some of the modeling that you would require to do to process all of this information is becoming more and more difficult. So I think inevitably we are requiring a level of judgment at some point, which means that, you know, in one way or another, discretion is going to have to play a very important role. Fascinating. So perhaps the discretion is as important as ever, if not more important than ever, but in a different guise than historically, because the discretion now is to judge the relative power of the different sources of data, of the different models that you're using and that sort of thing. There's definitely a lot of discretion in model building. And that's something that I think is not frequently recognized. One of the philosophical approaches that we have at Fulcrum is that for quantitative modeling, We do require quite a bit of, if you want, domain expertise. A priori knowledge is quite important in modeling. The number one danger that you have in this line of work is overfitting. And overfitting, to some extent, is something that is a natural outcome of the process that everyone wants to report to their bosses a strategy that works. Yes. Right? Yeah. And you cannot get away from that fundamental problem. I've never seen a backtest that goes down because if it were going down, it would not arrive to my desk. Right. Yeah. So to some extent, it is inevitable to apply prior knowledge. The question is then, do you apply it informally in your head when you're looking at the results from your team and you just make a judgment call? Or do you try to incorporate prior knowledge formally in a statistical sense to your modeling? And that's what we try to do. Mm. I often worry that in academic work, the risk of overfitting is even greater because you don't necessarily bear the consequences of that backtest not holding true in real life. Yeah, I think that is an interesting difference between writing an academic paper and creating a strategy that you're going to actually use for trading is that indeed you are going to see it day by day working or not working. Whereas when you finish the paper, you publish it, you hand in the results, that's it. It's done. Maybe someone is going to come five years later and tell you your paper didn't replicate after the fact, but it's okay. You're already famous, so to speak. So that actually leads to a slight change in philosophy from when you are writing a model for a paper versus writing a model for trading. And in the latter case, you're much more focused on robustness and you're much more focused on what could go wrong. And if, for example, the data is not going to be there, what are you going to do? Or if there is going to be an anomalous observation, how is the model going to react to? Because you don't want to have to be there in front of your computer at 3 a.m. in the morning or something like that. Um, So there's a lot of focus on making the models robust and stable to a number of unforeseen events. Great. So you mentioned earlier that you really strive to have a very strong research focus So can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done on the research front and how that's actually playing out in systematic investing at Fulcrum? 
So I think one very good example is on the field of nowcasting, where we have been working on that area for almost a decade. I would say we are really innovating in terms of the modeling work that we're doing. Now, the purpose of nowcasting is to get a very timely estimate of the current state of economic activity using all available data. And for many decades, I guess, in markets and in, in economics in general, there has been this focus on forecasting, right? Yes. Which is where are we going to be in one year, in two years? Now, the idea of now casting is that, look, forecasting is just too hard. And it's made especially hard because we don't even have a good idea of where we are right now. So it's very difficult to know where you're going if you don't know where you are. So the whole principle of now casting is let's just first get a clear idea of where we are. And then we can think about where we're going. And here, what we're doing is we are using advanced econometric techniques and a wide range of data sources to try to get a tracking estimate of economic activity. Yes. I've heard from other economists that through COVID, the availability of data vastly increased, which presumably makes now casting more accurate as a representation of the current state of, of economics? I mean, what's your take on that? I think to some extent it makes it more difficult because on the one hand, we had spent the previous years before COVID arguing that one of the most important things about nowcasting is that you need to use a lot of indicators and you need to combine many indicators because, you know, you wake up in the morning and retail sales is up, but the initial claims yesterday were below what was expected. So how do you make a summary of this? Then COVID comes, and of course, most of the traditional indicators are out of the window because they are delayed or sometimes they're not available because the people collecting the statistics are at home in lockdown. So we started getting these new sources of data, restaurant reservations, uh, number of commutes to work, and they are to some extent very useful because they're very timely, but they're also very noisy and they're very partial. So the big question for us is how do we actually make use of this new information without actually worsening the model because we are inputting data that is actually higher frequency but lower quality. Yes. And that actually required quite a bit of modeling work. And presumably you didn't have history for some of these newer data sources. Another thing that was very complicated is that precisely because the data is new, I mean, I remember in April or, or May of 2020, we had some interesting data that was available daily, but started in January of 2020. Yeah. So how do you actually model it? How do you link it with the other series that you might have in your, in your model? It's actually much harder than it looks. And the risk is that you just take them as, at face value and you get a noisy or incomplete picture of economic activity. One of the most interesting things that uh, we have seen in the last few years is that as, of course, the economy reopened and the traditional data came back, we have downplayed the use of some of these series right. that were popular during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, because it turns out that now that we have more data for them, our models are telling us, you know what, they're actually not that useful. So interesting. Mm. You have obviously been early into looking into now casting. You said you started this research journey 10 years ago or so, but more and more investment professionals are now looking at now casting. Does that also make this space more competitive and harder for you to necessarily have edge? It's definitely more competitive than it was. Um, I remember 
many years ago when we started doing this, we were saying, oh, now casting. And people were like, now what? <laughs> uh, whereas now it's, it's become very commoditized. I think, however, that because the structure of the economy is changing, because the availability of data is changing, if you manage to be at the frontier and you manage to stay at the frontier, keep innovating, there is always a little bit of edge that mm. you can get. And often you just need a little bit of edge. Mm. That's all you need. So interesting. And when you think about the different regions, I would imagine that US markets, for example, are the most commoditized. Mm. Uh, most people are looking at it. Maybe it's harder to have edge there versus other economies. How do you think about that? I mean, it's interesting because when you look at emerging markets, for example, th they are the hardest to model and they are the hardest in terms of data availability, but it's probably where most of the potential benefits are. So we're almost in this world in which it's the areas that are the hardest, the ones that are probably the ones that are worth pursuing. Yes. And you always have to be balancing these two things. Yeah, absolutely. So you've spoken about now casting and the importance of understanding the now, where we are today. Can you talk about how you marry this work and all your other modeling work with forecasts for asset returns? I mean, it's notoriously difficult to do that. How are you going about that? I think we definitely believe that there is um, alpha potential in dynamic asset allocation. And the reason why we believe that is because we... Uh, think that expected returns and expected uh, volatilities and variances, covariances, they are going to move around with the macroeconomic environment. So the question is, can you capture the changes in expected returns? And can you model them? And can you change your portfolio accordingly? Now, for many years, this was almost like a taboo area in finance, which yeah. is like you shouldn't do asset class timing and you shouldn't do tilting of your portfolio. I think the reason for that is, is related to this problem that we were discussing before of overfitting. And if you look at the data and you ask the data, hey, how much do expected returns vary over time? How predictable are returns? The data actually tells you quite a lot, which is counterintuitive because there's certain, there's certain variables that really show a lot of predictability. If you just follow that, you would do a crazy amount of asset timing. One of the things that is quite important for us, going back to this issue of introducing priors and introducing hypotheses, one of our prior hypotheses is actually that market timing is very difficult indeed. And by incorporating that prior into our models, saying, actually, if you do market timing, you should be very moderate and very cautious about it, we can actually um, do market timing in a moderate but successful way. And why is it that it's so difficult? I, you mentioned before that lots of these series look like they are forecastable, but in reality, they're not, or in reality, it's so easy to get it wrong. So where is that difficulty coming from? I think one of the difficulties has to do with the frequency at which certain asset returns are predictable. Mm. So I'll give you an example. It is well known that generally price dividend ratios forecast returns. So when prices are high relative to dividends, typically a few years later, returns are going to be generally lower than average, yeah. right? Now, the problem is that if this is a forecast that is happening over a period of five years, we only have a small amount of five-year periods to assess the validity of this forecast and the, the inference around this forecast. Yes. 
And therefore, it is very likely, actually, that we might get it wrong. And the calibration of that forecast, it could be way off. So it's a problem of the frequency of prediction being too low for us to do accurate inference. Makes a lot of sense. And also, even if you did have loads of five-year periods to backtest and infer from, isn't there also an issue that you don't necessarily have the waiting power for five years, i.e. can you be wrong for four and a half years before it starts working out? Of course. So the, the thing about trading at different frequencies is that the higher the frequency, the more confident you're going to be. Because if you're trading every minute within one week or so, you know whether a strategy is working. Yes. If you're trading once every year, you really need to wait 100 years. And most people don't want to wait 100 years, right? Yeah. So that's definitely a problem. That's really helpful. So going back to your tactical asset allocation analysis, obviously your now casting and your understanding of economic variables today must be a crucial input. Which variables really matter to you? Is it all about growth, for example? Is it also about inflation? I imagine inflation has been important over the last few years. Which variables really matter the most? So actually, let me turn that question around. I think what is very important is to think about the macroeconomy and financial markets as one system that is integrated. One of the things that we try to do a little bit differently with respect to dynamic asset allocation is we're not starting with a macroeconomic forecast and then translating that into a financial market forecast. We are actually thinking of, well, financial markets are influencing the macroeconomics and macroeconomics is influenced, it's, it's one and the same. So to some extent, I'm, I'm deflecting your question because I'm saying everything's important, but I'm also making a point about how what is really important is that the information that you have is timely and accurate. And whether that comes from inflation forecasting or it comes from your nowcast of economic activity or it comes from some asset prices that are very sensitive to news about economic activity, it doesn't really matter. What is important is do you realize that these things are integrated. So interesting. Great. So I always ask this question, what's more important, the data or the model? You've touched on how you use both. I mean, what's your answer to this question, Juan? So I think my answer is not going to be very original, but I think it's definitely both. Uh, okay. Because on the one hand, I think information is everything and timeliness of information is the number one factor. And that's going to come from your data. Is your data high quality? Do you have it available at a high frequency? And are you able to ingest it if you want? On the other hand, if you have a good model that is robust, among other things, to the data not being there, your process is going to be much more stable and is going to be probably much more successful. So while you could say, actually, information and data availability, data timeliness, data quality, if you're not there, I mean, if you don't have that, it's, it's a non-starter modeling is just so important. And I think it, it can be neglected sometimes in favor of data. That's really interesting. And are you saying that the modeling is particularly important if the data is suboptimal? So if the data is somewhat sparse or has issues? Absolutely. So for example, if the data has outliers, then you need a good model to basically catch those outliers. Yeah. And then the model needs to decide what to do with the outlier, right? Do you just remove it completely? Or do you remove it partially, in which case you will react to it in, in some way? If the data is sparse or if there is, um, I mean, if there is missing data, 
if the data changes its volatility, for example, how do you adapt to that and how do you take that into account? So yes, the data is the most important thing, but having a good model that can adapt to changes and irregularities in the data is something that um, is almost a requisite for actually using the data properly. Yes, excellent. So a few weeks ago, I spoke with Anna Stepnitska, who's a macroeconomist at Fidelity, about the impact of climate change on macroeconomic assumptions, in particular growth and inflation. And she was arguing that under various climate scenarios, growth in different markets would generally be lower and inflation in different markets would generally be higher. And she was talking about how they layered those assumptions into their strategic asset allocation models. So you're talking about now casting and your analysis on growth and inflation and other variables and impact on tactical asset allocation. Do you ever think about climate change and its impact? So we do. One of the things that we do at Fulcrum is that we identify longer term research projects that we decide to fund for a number of years, almost as a kind of riskier area of research that may or may not give fruits. And for us, a few years ago, we decided to start thinking about climate investing almost from a blank sheet of paper. So we do think about it quite a lot. I think it's extremely difficult. And to some extent, the industry moved very quickly into thinking about ESG and wanted to have a methodology that just produced some results. Whether that's the right approach or not, we have a little bit more doubts, uh, but we're definitely considering it. One of the reasons why it may be extremely difficult to incorporate climate considerations into asset allocation is precisely because what I was uh, touching upon earlier, this issue of the frequency. Mm. So it's already hard enough to understand whether valuations, uh, which play out over maybe five to seven, 10 years, how do you actually calibrate your expected return to that? Now, how do you actually calibrate your expected returns to something that is going to play out over 50 years? So I'm not saying that it's not important, it's crucial, but it is extremely difficult. And therefore, I think you, you really need to make an effort to not just build something into your asset allocation just to reflect exclusively your priors. You should do it, but you should do it really with a lot of care. Yes. It's one of those things that can't be back-tested, I it guess. definitely cannot be back-tested because we didn't have climate change, even if we had 100 years of data. Yeah. So many of the systematic investment managers I've spoken to focus on trend and discuss the fact that trend and momentum is actually one of the longest standing quant research areas. This idea that there's this persistent, even if small, trend effect, momentum effect in multiple asset classes over multiple time periods. Do you agree with that, Juan? And when you think about all of your models and all of your systematic strategies, what proportion of them do you think ultimately touch on trend? So full disclaimer, we run our own trend following system as well. It's something that we do, but we actually have devoted a lot of research to understanding what is next. Because to some extent, yes, if you look at the results of trend following, it's something that seems to have been going on for 100 years. But it's not been going on for 100 years in an environment in which everyone is aware of it and trying to trade on the basis of trend. So it's one of those examples in which the first 90 years of the backtest look much better than the last 10 years of the backtest. So 
there is definitely at the heart of a trend following strategy is the idea that markets do not process information instantaneously and they might underreact to news. And I think it's, it's pretty well established that that is something that is there. You, there is a lot of empirical evidence of market underreaction. There's also evidence of overreaction, by the way. The big question for trend following is, are past asset prices the only thing you need to know in order to capture that trend and capture that underreaction? So in other words, should you be using only price information for your trend following? Or can you incorporate other types of information in order to improve your forecast of where the asset prices are going to go next? And it may not surprise you that we are on the side that actually asset prices are not enough because there is information out there that can help you anticipate some of the trends and even sometimes anticipate what the trend followers are going to do if there has been some news that actually represents a change in the trend. Absolutely. So in a way, you believe you can do more than just the trend. The trend is one form of possible alpha, possible signal. But on top of that, there's multiple other sources of information that you want to incorporate. At the end of the day, it's all about incorporating information into prices. One of the ways that, that we like to think about it is that if you have information, which may be coming from your processing data in a more efficient or in a quicker way, when you trade, it's almost like you're giving that information to the market. And when you're giving that information with the mar- to the market, you are being compensated by returns. So in some sense, the trend following is saying, oh, there is information in past returns, and we're just going to push that into the market and incorporate it. Now, if you think that there's a Fed speech that is causing that change in the trend, well, you should be trading based on the information of the Fed speech, right? And that's something that is, is better information for the market and potentially is going to give you higher alpha. Yeah, sharper, more focused information in that case. Yes. We've touched a lot on your processes and your techniques. We haven't spoken about current market dynamics at this stage. Obviously, we're early in the year 2024. Juan, do you have any views on how this year will play out from a macro perspective? Well, so first of all, it is really not my job to have uh, opinions on markets. It's, it's not something that we do. However, I can give you the opinions of our models. Oh, yes, uh, please. Of our asset allocation uh, model in particular. Um, it, 2023 was a really interesting year in which I guess one of the big questions was, should investors go back to bonds now that interest rates are higher? And to some extent, our models were saying not quite yet. Less so, but we're still saying not quite yet. And one of the reasons for that is that if you look at the macroeconomic regime that we have been since basically since the pandemic, it is one in which supply disruptions, supply shocks in general, whether they are from, from energy or, or other sources, as well as monetary policy shocks, are much more prevalent than they were before. And in this environment, bonds are actually an asset class that is risky from the perspective of how it's moving together with equities. In the previous 20 years, bonds and equities were correlating negatively, and therefore having a a portfolio that included both stocks and bonds actually gave you a pretty good return with a low volatility. In the world in which we're in, and we think that we're still in it, despite the decline in inflation, bonds are adding risk to your portfolio for a lower return. Mm. So this correlation argument is actually something that is dependent on the macroeconomic environment, 
but it's critical for asset allocation. Yeah, it's such an interesting point that the sort of traditional 60-40 bond equity model portfolio, which is put together precisely because of that negative correlation, doesn't make sense where those correlations are positive as they have been recently. Yeah. So if you think, for example, of the risk parity approach, which was tremendously successful for the previous 20 years, it is something that was predicated on a macroeconomic environment in which supply and monetary policy shocks are not very prevalent, and therefore stocks and bonds are are co-moving negatively. Now, that was fine as long as it lasted, but it was clear after the pandemic that we were in a different regime. So in the same way that we adapt our forecasts of the macroeconomy to different regimes and different environments, our diversification principles and our asset allocation principles need to adapt as well. Totally. And it's interesting that you're arguing the drivers of this now positive correlation between equities and bonds is the supply shocks and these monetary policy shocks. Presumably the supply shocks, a lot of them have been geopolitics related when we think over the last few years. The monetary policy shocks, I guess, linked to higher inflation, which itself was somewhat linked to the supply shocks, Mm -hmm. albeit not wholly. So maybe this is not your job to do, but when we think about what could get us out of that regime, what would we need to wait for? A calming down of the geopolitical situation plus a calming down of inflation? So I think one of the big questions for the next few years is, is the natural rate of interest as low as it was prior to the pandemic or yeah. has it increased? Because if if it is low and we are going back to the pre-pandemic equilibrium, then I think we will be hitting the zero lower bound on interest rates relatively often. And therefore, we will be in this environment of low inflation, uh, low interest rates, and potentially, this is not necessarily um, automatic, but I think it is more likely that we are in a, in a world in which equities and bonds are moving negatively again. If not, we could be in a situation in which actually the, the very large shocks that we experienced in the last few years have, have moved the economy into a new equilibrium in which rates are higher. It's also the case that, as you were saying, geopolitical risks seem to be higher, but also the economy is just operating in a different way than it was before. And therefore, asset prices are operating in a new way. It's going to be a fascinating one to see. Brilliant. Well, we've covered so much and you've discussed so much of the cutting edge and academically very rigorous work that you're doing, Juan. When you think about the future... Is it more of the same or are there are there new areas that you're really looking forward to delving into? Well, there's definitely a few areas that we are uh, starting to think about. As I said before, w- one of the things that we do is we allocate to long-term research projects. These are almost blue sky projects mm. that we fund for a number of years and we may or may not get results. So we have one project ongoing on natural language processing. This has been going on for a while. And we are also very invested into machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's something that we're quite excited about. Mm. And you're clearly excited about both because you're funding them, you're researching them. Can you talk at all about where the promise and where the hope really lies? So one of the interesting things about machine learning in particular, and if you want AI, is that there has been a lot of focus on using AI for prediction. And for many years, we were somewhat skeptical of that because 
Again, you run into this problem that you don't have enough data. AI systems are fantastic when you have billions and billions of observations, which yeah. is not something that we really have. We only have eight meetings per year of the FOMC. So yeah. if we are macro traders, we definitely don't have billions of observations. Now, what is much more interesting for us is to use these techniques in the realms of portfolio construction and risk management. Um, for example, on risk management, we can simulate thousands and thousands of possible shocks to the economy and try to understand how our models would react to those. And you know, by simulating millions of what we call data generating processes, we will actually be exploring some pretty strange ones. And then is when you're really going to test your model because it's how are you going to react to this completely unforeseen, unexpected, statistically unlikely scenario. That's something that is really uh, promising and not just the AI methods themselves, but also the computational power that has accompanied the AI revolution is something that we're really exploiting. Yes, that's a really good point. And actually, I've heard from several other quantitative investors, including some who've appeared on this podcast series about the power of machine learning models specifically for risk management and regime management, um, rather than sort of single stock forecasting. Is that something you observe as well? Yes, yes. We think that, I mean, AI is a, is a catch-all term for a number of very different methods and techniques. And in many areas, it has been really overhyped. But I think risk management and portfolio construction is actually one where it is really going to be revolutionary. That's really interesting. Juan, this has been a really insightful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to go through all of these details about your work and your team's work and your firm's work. I think it's really impressive. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to learn more about Fulcrum or indeed Juan's academic work, then please do look at the show notes. Otherwise, if you have questions or you'd like to get in touch with our team, then please do go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, they are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.